Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds family. Dan Ambender here. This episode continues the Cardio Nerds Lipid Series, which is a comprehensive, all you need to know series led by co chairs Dr. Rick Ferraro, Director of Journal Club for the Cardio Nerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. Tommy Das, Program Director of the Cardio Nerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and is produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. Tommy and Rick are joined by Cardio Nerds Ambassador from the University of Connecticut, Dr. Justice Aranifo as well as faculty expert, Dr. Ty Gluckman. This discussion is truly a masterclass that provides a background to understanding what are omega-3 fatty acids, their cardiovascular effects, especially with regards to EPA, the role for inflammation and anti-inflammatory therapy for ASCVD risk, and the current state-of-the-art for the possible therapeutic role of omega-3 fatty acids in the management of patients at risk for or who have ASCVD. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is made possible by unrestricted support from Amarin. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds without external bias. And with that, let's get on with the show. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thank you for joining us for part three in our ongoing series on triglycerides. If you haven't already, please check out parts one and two of this series, where we discuss the link between hypertriglyceridemia and cardiovascular disease, as well as some of the data regarding the use of DHA-EPA combinations to lower ASCVD risk. My name is Tommy Doss. I'm a first-year cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic and program director for the CardioNerds Academy. As always, I'm joined by my friend, former co-resident, and current cardiology fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, Rick Ferraro. Thanks, Tommy. Really excited to continue this journey into the world of lipids. Today, we're going to be discussing EPA as a potential therapeutic option for patients with hypertriglyceridemia. We've got some great guests with us. First, we have Justice Oranifo. Justice is a current cardiology fellow at the University of Connecticut and serves as the CardioNerds ambassador for his institution. He is deeply interested in medical education as well as diversity in medicine. Justice, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hey, Rick. Thanks so much. Now, I have the distinct pleasure to introduce our expert guest, Dr. Ty Gluckman. Dr. Gluckman is the medical director of the Center of Cardiovascular Analytics, Research and Data Science at the Providence St. Joseph Heart Institute in Portland, Oregon, and an adjunct faculty member at the Sikoron Center of Prevention of Heart Disease at the John Hopkins Hospital. He has previously served as the National Clinical Quality Expert for the ACC Patient Navigator Program and currently serves as the National Chair of the ACC Patient Navigator Program, Focus MI. Additionally, Dr. Gluckman is a leader not only in the field of cardiovascular prevention, but also care condition coordination, quality improvement, and even app development as the lead developer of the ACC AHA ASCVD Risk Calculator app. Dr. Gluckman, thank you for joining us today. Justice, the pleasure is all mine. I'm really honored to be on with you guys today. 
Dr. Gluckman, thank you so much for lending your time and expertise with us. I'd like to get us started with a question we ask all our guests in the series, and that's how did you first get interested in the field of cardiovascular prevention and lipidology? You know, it's a great question, and I think it's the case in most areas in medicine. It's being fortunate to have really good mentors that get you excited about something. So I spent some of my early and mid-portion of my training before fellowship at Northwestern. I had the chance during my time at Northwestern to work with Dr. Neil Stone and Dr. Robert Rosenson, both leaders in the field of prevention and lipids. And then I transitioned to my fellowship at Johns Hopkins Hospital and had the distinct pleasure of working with Dr. Roger Blumenthal, a luminary in the field of prevention, who was great to me and really encouraged my interest in this area. Thank you again, Dr. Gluckman. Now, as we mentioned earlier, we will be discussing a crucial and nuanced topic as it pertains to cardiovascular health. And yes, you guessed it right, omega-3 fatty acids. Now, in the past, several over-the-counter supplements claiming to contain fish oil and other omega-3 fatty acids have been widely available. However, over the past few years, we're now seeing the increased use of FDA-approved pharmacotherapies containing EPA and DHA for the treatment of hypertriglyceridemia. Now, to you, Dr. Gluckman, I would like to start with the most basic question, which is, what are these compounds? How are they metabolized in our body? And how are they related to triglycerides? Thanks, Justice. It's a great question. And I'm going to start with a little bit of technical background information. Polyunsaturated fatty acids are types of unsaturated fats that have more than one double bond in their backbone. I promise I won't get more technical than that. And omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6 fatty acids represent the two main classes of polyunsaturated fatty acids. While several omega-3 fatty acids exist, most of the research has focused on alpha-linoleic acid, or ALA, icosapentaenoic acid, or EPA, and docosohexanoic acid, or DHA. Now, alpha-linoleic acid is found in vegetable oils, such as safflower, sunflower, soybean, and corn oils. In contrast, EPA and DHA are found in fish, fish oils, and krill oils. And of note and of interest, these latter omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, are actually synthesized by microalgae. Phytoplankton consume microalgae, and fish consume the phytoplankton, thus the reason they're actually found in fish. After omega-3 fatty acids are ingested, they're hydrolyzed in the intestinal lumen into monoglycerides and free fatty acids, and these are incorporated into chylomicrons and enter the circulation via the lymphatic system. Now, omega-3 fatty acids play key roles as components of phospholipids that help form cell membranes, and as just one example, levels of DHA are especially high in the retina and brain. Omega-3 fatty acids are also used to form eicosanoids, which are signaling molecules with wide-ranging functions throughout the body. Of note, omega-6 fatty acids are also used to form eicosanoids, but these molecules tend to be more potent mediators of inflammation, vasoconstriction, and platelet aggregation. And based on this, some have even suggested that the relative intake of levels of omega-6 fatty acids to omega-3 fatty acids may have important implications for certain disorders such as cardiovascular disease. Despite that, the optimal ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids is yet to be defined. Omega-3 fatty acid levels can be measured in the plasma. However, levels can vary substantially and most often reflect an individual's last meal, not long-term dietary consumption. It's also possible to measure an index of omega-3 fatty acid status via analysis of EPA and DHA in erythrocyte membranes that reflects longer intake over the preceding four months. Omega-3 fatty acid content is highest in cold water fish, such as salmon, mackerel, tuna, and sardines. 
farmed fish in general have higher levels of EPA and DHA than wild-caught fish, but it really depends upon the food that the fish are fed. Differences in the hydrocarbon length and number of double bonds between EPA and DHA may underlie some of the observed differences between EPA and DHA. For example, EPA assumes an extended conformation in cellular membranes, allowing it to more easily neutralize reactive oxygen species, facilitate membrane stabilization, and limit oxidation of LDL cholesterol. In contrast, DHA possesses a longer carbon chain and has one additional double bond, resulting in less membrane stabilization. DHA also inhibits formation of DGLA, which is important for the production of anti-inflammatory eicosanoids, and thus can also increase levels of LDL cholesterol. So in summary, there are a lot of differences that may exist between EPA and DHA, but they all collectively fall under what are referred to as omega-3 fatty acids. I know we're going to delve into this more deeply, though, beyond this. Dr. Gluckman, that was a tour de force on EPA and DHA there. I I can't wait to go back and listen to that again because there were so many pearls there. I'll say in particular, the the point about farmed fish having higher EPA and DHA is, uh, is an interesting one. I hadn't heard that before. You know, I'd love to bring up, though, that in episode two of our series, we did a pretty deep dive into DHA-EPA combination medications and ultimately concluded that these therapies in combination have not been shown to improve cardiovascular outcomes. However, purified EPA-only products may have cardioprotective effect based on the results of studies like Reduce It and Jealous and a number of other trials. Additionally, this benefit may actually be out of proportion to what we would expect by triglyceride lowering alone. Dr. Gluckman, I know you have some expertise in this area. Could you discuss a little bit of our current understanding on EPA and how it improves cardiovascular outcomes and whether there are things going on outside of triglycerides alone? Yeah, it's a great question. And as you rightly point out, purified EPA at higher doses has been shown to provide cardiovascular benefit on top of statin therapy in both the jealous and subsequent reduced trials. Now, importantly, this benefit extends to individuals with triglyceride levels that are even in the normal range, less than 150 milligrams per deciliter. And the magnitude of benefit appears to be out of proportion to that expected for the typical 25 to 30% drop in triglycerides associated with purified EPA use. As such, it really should invite us to think of purified EPA as a therapy that lowers cardiovascular risk beyond its lipid-modifying effects. And to reinforce this further, When purified EPA was first approved, it was approved for treatment of those with severe or more moderate elevations of triglycerides. We really need to think of purified EPA as a cardiovascular risk-reducing drug instead of just being a triglyceride-lowering therapy. Importantly, omega-3 fatty acids in EPA in particular have a number of other cardiovascular effects. EPA and DHA can both reduce systolic blood pressure by 4 to 5 millimeters of mercury and diastolic blood pressure by 3 millimeters of mercury in those with untreated hypertension. Its effects are more modest in those who have treated hypertension. EPA and DHA can lower resting heart rate by about 2 beats per minute, likely by augmenting vagal tone. EPA and DHA can improve diastolic function with enhanced diastolic filling. EPA and DHA can improve flow-mediated vasodilation, likely by lowering markers of endothelial dysfunction such as E-selectin, VCAM1, and ICAM1. And finally, EPA and DHA may help to limit inflammation as both omega-3 fatty acids have been shown to reduce levels of inflammatory biomarkers. 
Now, although some studies have reported similar or even more pronounced lowering of triglycerides and pro-inflammatory cytokines with DHA, a growing body of literature suggests that both EPA and DHA, along with omega-6 fatty acids, differ in their effects on membrane structure, inflammation, lipid oxidation, and endothelial function. Increased intake of omega-6 fatty acids favor high arachidonic acid content in membrane phospholipids, and that leads to excess pro-inflammatory cytokine production through multiple pathways. In contrast, increased omega-3 fatty acids, and in particular EPA, compete with arachidonic acid through these same pathways, mitigating pro-inflammatory cytokines and generating mediators that facilitate vasodilation. Given that several markers of inflammation, such as CRP, IL-6, and myeloperoxidase have been associated with increased cardiovascular risk, it's certainly possible that the anti-inflammatory effects of omega-3 fatty acids, and in particular EPA, underlie some and perhaps a disproportionate amount of its cardiovascular benefit. This obviously begs the question that I asked earlier about the role of targeting inflammation for cardiovascular risk reduction and may help to explain the disproportionate benefit associated with purified EPA. Truthfully, some of the earliest interest in this stems from the Jupiter trial, which was published nearly a decade and a half ago. It was based on the recognition that increased levels of high-sensitivity CRP could predict cardiovascular events, and statins were able to lower HSCRP, or high-sensitivity CRP, levels. Accordingly, the Jupiter trial was carried out to determine whether use of high-intensity statin therapy, rosuvastatin at 20 milligrams a day, in otherwise healthy individuals with an elevated HSCRP level, but no indication for lipid-lowering therapy, could reduce the risk of adverse cardiovascular events. And as you all probably know, the study was stopped after a meeting of almost two years because of significant cardiovascular benefit noted for those randomized to rosuvastatin. And while the Jupiter trial validated the benefits of high-intensity statin therapy in this population, several secondary analyses have revealed limitations. First, baseline HSCRP levels did not independently predict a preferential benefit with statin therapy. In addition, the relative risk reduction from rosuvastatin was consistent across three separate HSCRP cut points. Finally, interaction testing between HSCRP levels and benefit from statin therapy was negative. And as a result of this, multiple additional studies have been done targeting inflammation, seeking to validate inflammation as a target for cardiovascular risk reduction. Now, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to run through a few of these trials, the first of which as a major trial to follow Jupiter was the Ladoco trial. And this trial sought to evaluate the benefits or the effects of colchicine, an anti-inflammatory therapy in patients with stable coronary heart disease over a meeting of three years. And while cardiovascular benefit was conferred by colchicine, most of the benefit in this trial was driven by non-fatal cardiovascular events. And unfortunately, as has been the case with trials evaluating colchicine, levels of inflammatory biomarkers, such as HSCRP, were not collected. So the underlying mechanism of benefit associated with colchicine in this population is not completely clear. This was followed thereafterwards by a really important trial, the Cantos trial which used canakinumab, a monoclonal antibody targeting IL-1 beta to reduce inflammation. This trial enrolled over 10,000 individuals with a prior myocardial infarction and an HSCRP level greater than or equal to 2 milligrams per liter on background statin therapy to one of three doses of canakinumab or placebo. And after a follow-up of 3.7 years, those treated with canakinumab, again, a pure anti-inflammatory agent with no effect on lipid levels, canakinumab significantly lowered the risk of adverse cardiovascular events with the lowest events observed in those in the lowest tertile of HSCRP on treatment. 
given the absence of any effect on LDL cholesterol, the benefits of canakinumab were felt to directly result from reduction in inflammation. Now, three other trials have followed in this space, including the CERT trial, which evaluated methotrexate as an alternative anti-inflammatory therapy. In this trial, no cardiovascular benefit was observed with methotrexate, perhaps because lower levels of inflammatory biomarkers were not observed. The Colcott trial followed thereafter, seeking to evaluate the effect of low-dose colchicine early after an acute myocardial infarction. And while in this trial a significant reduction in the primary endpoint was observed, this study, like that previously, did not measure inflammatory biomarkers. Finally, and most recently, the LADOCO-2 trial sought to evaluate low-dose colchicine in patients with stable coronary artery disease. And while a significant reduction in the primary outcome was observed, this trial did not measure baseline levels of inflammatory biomarkers. So overall, while these studies support a role for targeted anti-inflammatory therapy, a potential mechanism by which EPA may convey benefit, it is important that one measure inflammation to identify those most likely to benefit from its lowering. In addition to this, because canakinumab is not FDA-approved for cardiovascular risk reduction, and the benefit for colchicine in the LADOCO, Colcott, and LADOCO-2 trials were not based on HSCRP levels, further trial data is needed to guide decision-making in this space. Thank you so much, Dr. Glockman, for that explanation. It was really good that you highlighted the impact of inflammation in coronary artery disease and cardiovascular disease as a whole. Now that you've laid the good groundwork, let's discuss a hypothetical patient. Let's imagine a patient. His name is John Biggs. He is a 48-year-old male. He has hypertension, type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia. His hemoglobin A1C is 10.7% and his BMI is 36. Now, he works as a long-haul truck driver with a diet heavy on takeaways, energy drinks, and such. His most recent lipid panel shows an LDL of 120, HDL of 38, and triglycerides of 300. For medical management, he is on insulin, metformin, lisinopril, and high-intensity statin. Now, for such a patient, what would be your approach in lifestyle interventions to manage his risk of cardiovascular events in the future? Yeah, this is a great case and a great question that you ask. I will start first by saying that individuals like this who are away from home for long periods of time are really challenged when living on the road in finding uh, opportunities to adhere to a heart-healthy lifestyle. So part of this is related to his occupation. That being said, where do we begin? So I think first and foremost, it's important to exclude and or address secondary causes of hypertriglyceridemia. As you noted, his triglycerides are moderately elevated at 300. He has a low HDL cholesterol. His LDL cholesterol is at a level that is probably acceptable. I will call out the fact that LDL cholesterol measurements become less reliable with the traditional means by which we estimate them, the Friedewald equation, in those individuals that have elevated triglycerides. And so the LDL cholesterol that's reported out here may not be an accurate reflection of his true atherogenic risk. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, his hemoglobin A1C is 10.7%, reflecting far from optimal glycemic control. So I will say that multiple other disease-related dietary-related, drug-related, and metabolism-related causes of hypertriglyceridemia exist. And so it is important when inventorying what are the potential causes of hypertriglyceridemia in a patient such as this, what role diabetes plays, which is unequivocally at the top of my list for poorly controlled diabetes as the cause for his hypertriglyceridemia, but are there any other potential offending agents? 
When one thinks about approaching this, the American College of Cardiology in 2021 put out an expert consensus decision pathway titled the expert consensus decision pathway on the management of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk reduction in patients with persistent hypertriglyceridemia and is really a very well done synthesis of the literature. It also takes all end users, clinicians, through a very nice algorithm about how to approach hypertriglyceridemia in patients like this. For all individuals, lifestyle intervention is the first line of therapy for all patients with hypertriglyceridemia. So you'd ask the question starting out, what are the lifestyle interventions one would do? It's important to realize that for those with elevated triglycerides, regardless of the underlying driver, weight loss is considered the most effective lifestyle intervention as a 5 to 10% reduction in body weight is associated with an on average 20% decrease in triglycerides. It is really important to realize that this is the average reduction in triglycerides. Some may have a much more modest reduction, but some can see an appreciably greater reduction in triglycerides well above the 20%. It begs the question, though, what's the most preferred dietary approach for weight loss, at least in terms of triglyceride lowering? And in that expert consensus decision pathway, it highlights that there are a number of different dietary approaches. But when one looks at it through the lens of triglyceride lowering, it's important to realize that in general, lower fat, higher carbohydrate diets lessen the reduction in triglycerides in response to weight loss compared with a higher fat, lower carbohydrate weight loss diet. So again, weight loss is key regardless of the approach. But if one is going to try and achieve weight loss, a carbohydrate restricted diet tends to be associated with more pronounced triglyceride lowering. Now, the greatest triglyceride lowering has been observed with very low carbohydrate diets, where carbohydrates represent less than 10% of all calories consumed. In addition to this, higher protein diets, where 25% or more of energy comes from protein, that can facilitate increased weight loss along with appreciable triglyceride lowering as well. Finally, intermittent fasting can achieve appreciable triglyceride lowering, but in general, this comes about through weight loss, not by an independent mechanism overall. And in the 2021 expert consensus decision pathway, it notes that you should first assess non-lifestyle secondary causes of hypertriglyceridemia. We touched on that and then assess lifestyle practices. What is their body weight? How far is it from ideal? What is their diet? And we talked about the different dietary approaches, including the types of carbohydrates that they ingest, how much alcohol is consumed, which can be a driver of elevated triglycerides, and then is there a role for pharmacotherapy in this patient population? Lastly, I would reinforce the importance of physical activity with at least 150 minutes per week of accumulated moderate intensity or 75 minutes per week of vigorous intensity aerobic physical activity or the equivalent between both components as a goal for individuals in terms of triglyceride lowering overall. So in this patient, I think there are a number of things that can be done beyond all of the dietary modifications that can help to lose weight and improve their glycemic control. It's really important above and beyond that for Mr. Biggs to get on a glycemic regimen that will help to improve his hemoglobin A1C, as this will almost certainly result in improvement in his lipids above and beyond that which he's receiving with metformin and insulin as well. Just a follow-up question on that, Dr. Gluckman. I do have several patients with similar profile like this, 
And since we're in the subject of talking about omega-3 fatty acids, a lot of which come from fish and other, um, other sources, would you recommend a diet that is heavier in salmon and other seafoods for such a patient? Yeah, it's a great question. So in general, I always encourage people to get their form of omega-3 fatty acids through foods that they ingest. And so deep water, cold water fish, such as salmon, tuna, mackerel, is of key importance in this individual. It is important to also reinforce that the food preparation of the fish should not be lost on any of us. So in these individuals, broiled or grilling of the fish is best. By frying the fish, you essentially deplete the associated benefits with eating deep water, cold water fish in a patient such as this. Thank you. That's a good point to note. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Gluckman, not only for going through all the lifestyle interventions, but talking about the actual details of what that entails. I think it's easy to say the first step is lifestyle, but when it actually comes down to how we advise patients, it's important to have those actual concrete recommendations in our back pocket. Uh, and I have to say, we have, we'll have to come out to the Pacific Northwest, to Portland, and have some nice grilled salmon with you out there. I, I think that's on our list to do now, for sure. You're always welcome. Excellent. Excellent. We'll, we'll take you up on that. Great. So. I want to follow up with the next question here. We've laid out some really important points for how to take care of Mr. Fix. And you know, before that, we laid out some really important scientific underpinnings for the inflammatory model for ASCVD. And you also said something that really struck a chord with me, and that's that EPA is not really a triglyceride drug. We, we should not think of it that way, but it's more of a general cardiovascular drug and all the different effects that it has, as you mentioned earlier. And one of those things is the effect of inflammation. So piggybacking off those ideas, I would ask you for a patient like Mr. Biggs, what potential role would prescription strength omega-3 fatty acids and EPA play in the management of his cardiovascular risk? Yeah, and I just want to reinforce one of the points that you brought up. You know, to be clear, things like purified EPA in the form of a drug like icosapentethyl is a drug or a therapy that does lower triglycerides. So I do want to be clear, they lower triglycerides, but we believe that the cardiovascular benefits associated from its use disproportionately exceed that associated with purely just lowering triglycerides. So in my mind, I think of icosapentethyl, purified EPA as a cardiovascular risk-reducing drug. Now, in that same vein, patients who have diabetes mellitus may be on other therapies that reduce their cardiovascular risk. For a type 2 diabetic, they may benefit from being on an SGLT2 inhibitor, a GLP-1 receptor agonist. They certainly benefit from being on at least moderate, and in this case, high-intensity statin therapy. So I think we should be thinking about this as another therapy to add to our armamentarium to mitigate or lower cardiovascular risk in a patient such as this. It's also important to sort of reflect on what is the clinical trial data supporting the use of, let's say, pure EPA in a diabetic to reduce cardiovascular risk. And support, at least for the use of icosapentethyl or purified EPA, does come from two trials we've discussed earlier, albeit briefly, the JELUS and the REDUCE-IT trials. So just as a refresher in the JELUS trial, there were over 18,000 patients, primary and secondary prevention patients, on a background of statin therapy that were randomized to 1,800 milligrams of pure EPA or placebo. And after a mean follow-up of 4.6 years, treatment with icosapentethyl was associated with an approximate 19% relative risk reduction in major coronary events. In a subgroup analysis of those with impaired glucose metabolism, which in that trial was defined as those with diabetes mellitus, 
or a fasting plasma glucose of 110 or greater, treatment with icosapet ethyl was associated with a 22% relative reduction in the rate of adverse cardiovascular events, so slightly greater than that observed for the overarching larger trial. Similarly, in the REDUCE-IT trial, which included almost 8,200 primary and secondary prevention patients with a fasting triglyceride level of 135 to 499 milligrams per deciliter, there were also on background statin therapy They were randomized either to icosapet ethyl at a dose of 2 grams twice daily or matching placebo. After a follow-up of 4.9 years, those receiving icosapet ethyl saw a 25% relative risk reduction and a nearly 5% absolute risk reduction in the primary efficacy endpoint. Really staggeringly strong benefit. Among those with diabetes, along with one or more additional cardiovascular risk factors, however, treatment with icosapet ethyl was associated with a 7% absolute risk reduction with a significant benefit across all of the endpoints except for all-cause mortality. And this should come as no surprise. In multiple trials where we have seen pharmacologic interventions, where we attempt to reduce cardiovascular risk by whatever way we want to assess that, as you stack additional risk factors, diabetes being one of the most common of those, you will actually see that there is a benefit that is conferred from the base group population. And if you add diabetes to it, you'll see that whether you are receiving placebo or an active intervention, an active comparator, you will see that in both arms of that group, higher baseline risk of no surprise, adding diabetes to an otherwise at-risk population further increases their cardiovascular risk. But you will also see often a greater absolute magnitude of risk reduction in absolute terms as well. And that was observed in the REDUCE-IT trial. Now, let's contrast that a little bit with the combination of DHA plus EPA. And this was evaluated in a similar design trial to REDUCE-IT in the STRENGTH trial, which randomized over 13,000 high cardiovascular risk patients, triglycerides between 180 to 500, to treatment with combined EPA and DHA compared to placebo. And in this study, 70% of patients were diabetic, like the patient we've been discussing. This study was stopped early because of a low probability of benefit with omega-3 fatty acids, and thus we saw no cardiovascular benefit with DHA plus EPA in this trial. And I know you may have reviewed this in one of the prior sessions, but just to compare and contrast, the reason that some of our guidance documents have now given favored status to icosapent ethyl a purified form of EPA is because of the benefits observed with that intervention in the JELUS and in the REDUCE-IT trials, yet not seen similar benefits afforded by the combination of DHA plus EPA like in the STRENGTH trial. So I think that this case illustrates the value of pharmacotherapy reinforced by data that we have for patients like this that would have been included in trials like JELUS and REDUCE-IT. Dr. Gluckman, again, incredibly grateful for your commentary there and, and covering such a broad range of major points and, and things that, that I'm going to take home for sure, and I think other listeners will as well. I'd like to discuss another patient. This patient's name is Luke Skinny. He's a 45-year-old male with hypertension. Lipid panel drawn as part of a routine physical showed an LDL of 95, an HDL of 35, and triglycerides of 560. He's very active, cycling three times a week, and maintains a healthy diet. Dr. Glickman, what would be your recommendation for someone with a triglyceride level really in the severely elevated range such as this patient? Yeah, this is a great case and a great question, and it illustrates what we're trying to achieve in patients with severe hypertriglyceridemia. 
So in the United States, we generally consider people with severe hypertriglyceridemia as those individuals with triglycerides greater than or equal to 500. And the primary goal in this patient population beyond cardiovascular risk reduction, and I can assure you that such a patient is at increased cardiovascular risk, it's primarily to mitigate the risk of pancreatitis, which is increased with triglycerides greater than or equal to 500, and in particular, triglycerides greater than or equal to 1,000. I will just call out the fact that in this patient, their LDL is reported as 95. Now, it is possible to directly measure LDL through things like beta centrifugation or ultracentrifugation. But in general, with the Friedewald equation, for those individuals with triglycerides greater than or equal to 400, you'll often get back that the LDL cannot otherwise be estimated. And even direct assays for measuring LDL cholesterol are notoriously unreliable for individuals that have triglycerides in this range. Most people with severe hypertriglyceridemia benefit from statin therapy, but we may reorder our pharmacotherapy to focus in on triglyceride lowering to get people out of dodge as it relates to pancreatitis. It is important to realize that the higher one's triglyceride levels, the more one is intent on restricting sugars and in particular total fat in one's diet so that when one has triglycerides between 500 and 999, you're going to want to reduce the total fat as a percent of calories down to 20 to 25%. And for those with triglycerides greater than or equal to 1,000, which may be related to things like familial lipoprotein lipase deficiency, familial chylomicronemia syndrome, you want to reduce total fat down to about 10 to 15%. And in these two latter groups, those with triglycerides of 500 or greater or 1,000 or greater, you want to abstain from alcohol together and really avoid as much as possible sugars. Now, there are a range of pharmacotherapies that can help to lower triglycerides. These include the fibric acid derivatives or fibrates, omega-3 fatty acids, and then also niacin. You're going to find that in many cases for those individuals that do not have a reversible cause for elevated triglycerides, markedly uncontrolled blood sugars, or other potential reversible causes, that individuals may require not just one, but two drugs to lower their triglycerides. And certainly for those that have triglycerides greater than or equal to 1,000, it's pretty common that they will require two or more drugs to sort of get them out of the risk of pancreatitis overall. I try where possible to initiate drugs like purified EPA based upon its cardiovascular risk-reducing benefit, albeit the REDUCE-IT trial and the JELUS trial did not enroll people with this degree of hypertriglyceridemia. I will also frequently turn to a fibrate being added to a patient such as this to help in lowering their triglycerides as well, recognizing the limited amount of data that we have in terms of cardiovascular risk reduction. I will just make a quick point to say that niacin was studied as add-on therapy to statin therapy in a completely different population in the AIM High and HPS2 Thrive trials and was shown to have no cardiovascular added benefit and in fact increased risks or safety concerns in those populations. So while niacin is an effective agent, particularly at higher doses and lowering triglycerides, it tends not to be my first or second drugs to choose from overall. And then I will just circle back to that expert consensus decision pathway recently put out by the American College of Cardiology. They do a really nice job of highlighting the importance in these patients with severe hypertriglyceridemia of ruling out secondary causes, optimizing diet and lifestyle, optimizing glycemic control, and then considering fibrates or prescription omega-3 fatty acids to reduce the risk of pancreatitis. Lastly, reinforcing that for many of these patients, they ultimately require statin therapy once their triglycerides are appropriately dealt with, 
And so you could see some individuals on three lipid-modifying agents if they have severe hypertriglyceridemia, a fibrate, a drug like icosapenethyl, and a statin. Dr. Goldman, that's an excellent review of how to take care of a pretty high-risk patient population and especially how to use some of these medications that we may not use in our day-to-day practice, fibrates, niacin, et cetera. You know, something else about this patient, in addition to their extremely high triglyceride levels, is they also have elevated LDLC and relatively low HDL levels. Now, there's been some debate in the literature about how purified omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, affect LDL and HDL levels. So I just wanted to get your opinion on this topic. How do you think these agents impact LDL and HDL? Yeah, it's a phenomenal question. And this sort of came to a head in the REDUCE IT trial, because as many of you may recall, ethyl was compared in that trial to an active comparator, and that active comparator was mineral oil. And as was observed in the analyses that followed the REDUCE IT trial top-line data, it was observed that individuals who received mineral oil saw a increase in their LDL cholesterol level and an elevation in their HSCRP level that may have potentially enriched the chance for showing a disproportionate benefit by creating an imbalance between ethyl and treatment with mineral oil. Now, this was adjudicated by the FDA advisory panel, and I will acknowledge that the effects from mineral oil being the active comparator in the REDUCE-IT trial may have confounded some of the results, but I think that the overwhelmingly strong benefits associated with use of ethyl in that trial does not at least get jeopardized or is not adequately explained by small differences in the effects of mineral oil on LDL cholesterol as well as HSCRP. And lastly, the effect of mineral oil may have been impairing the absorption of statins that individuals were on in the REDUCE-IT trial that may explain why their LDL cholesterol levels modestly came up and their HSCRP levels came up. Another effect that statins can have is lowering of HSCRP overall. I will just say that omega-3 fatty acids in general have a fairly minimal effect on HDL cholesterol. It's sort of been the forgotten lipoprotein in the midst of all of the different ones that we talk about. Still to this day, the priority is around LDL cholesterol, the exception being in those who have severe hypertriglyceridemia, getting them out of a risk or the zone for pancreatitis, at which point they will still require lipid-modifying therapy focused on lowering LDL cholesterol in the vast majority of circumstances. One important takeaway, though, is as one lowers triglycerides, you will often see that their HDL cholesterol will come up. That's part and parcel of intensifying their dietary or lifestyle interventions or initiating pharmacotherapy targeting triglycerides overall. Dr. Glogbring, thank you again for really the incredible points there, focusing on some really important topics. I know HDL was a really hot topic for for a really long time, and it's fallen a little bit out of the conversation. So interesting and important to kind of hear your take there. I'd like to chat about one more patient briefly. This patient's name is Lizzie Yu. She is a 75-year-old female with a history of CAD, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, and hepatitis. She had an MI four years ago and received a stent for that, PCI, and recently had another MI just a couple months ago requiring PCI. Her recent lipid panel is notable for LDL of 90, HDL of 46, and triglycerides of 190. She's on aspirin, high-dose resuvastatin, ticagrelor, carvedilol, and lisinopril. 
So a pretty good regimen. Is there any role for omega-3s or polyunsaturated fatty acids in patients like this with recent cardiovascular events? Yeah, this is a great complementary case to the other ones that we've discussed because as you correctly pointed out, this is a patient with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. I'll go one step further based upon the 2018 blood cholesterol guidelines. This is a patient that's at very high risk particularly based upon the fact that she had a prior MI and now had a recent acute coronary syndrome, categorizing her in the very high-risk category. At a minimum, her LDL cholesterol treatment threshold is 70. And I'm very particular not to use the word goal because the goal is not to get her LDL just below 70. The term treatment threshold is preferred because it defines a population in whom something more needs to be done in terms of LDL cholesterol lowering with the greatest benefit associated with the greatest reduction in LDL cholesterol that can be achieved. But as you point out, her triglycerides are also elevated in addition to that. So I start by reinforcing the fact that this is a patient who should have all of the steps taken that we've discussed previously, assessing non-lifestyle secondary causes for elevated triglycerides, assessing their lifestyle practices, ultimately recommending heart-healthy lifestyle interventions to lower her cardiovascular risk. But ultimately, this is a patient who meets criteria for someone who would have been enrolled in the REDUCE-IT trial. She has atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Her LDL cholesterol, although not optimal, she's on high-intensity statin therapy and has a triglyceride level in the range for someone who arguably requires something more to be done. So this is one of those interesting things that if we reflect back on the earlier conversation and we think about purified EPA or ethyl as a cardiovascular risk-reducing drug associated with significant cardiovascular benefit in the reduced trial, and we think of additional LDL cholesterol-lowering drugs like azetamibe and in particular PCSK9 inhibitors as drugs that can lower LDL cholesterol that are also cardiovascular risk-reducing drugs, the question is, which should you reach for next? And part of this depends upon truly how far away from their LDL cholesterol treatment threshold their LDL cholesterol level is. So for patients like this, if their LDL cholesterol was greater than or equal to 100, I'd go aggressively down the LDL cholesterol pathway, prioritizing that over triglycerides first. In contrast, in someone whose LDL cholesterol is 72, but their triglycerides are 400, I'd certainly make a push to get their triglycerides down, albeit the benefits associated with icosapenethyl may extend well beyond triglyceride lowering, as we discussed, anti-inflammatory effects. I'd probably go down that pathway. And as was outlined in the 2021 expert consensus decision pathway put out by the American College of Cardiology, it describes exactly this. So if a patient like this had their LDL already below the treatment threshold of 70, you focus in on triglyceride lowering using omega-3 fatty acids, specifically in the form of icosapenethyl. If their LDL cholesterol is greater than or equal to 100, go down the LDL pathway introduced by the multi-society blood cholesterol guidelines published in 2018. And if they're somewhere in between with an LDL of 70 to 99, and this is based on expert consensus, you really can discuss one or both approaches getting their LDL down, and also initiating ethyl or one or the other of those two options. So you really have some discretion knowing that both approaches, targeting LDL, targeting triglyceride lowering, but also the additional benefits associated with purified EPA in terms of deriving cardiovascular benefit in a patient such as this. Thank you so much, Dr. Glockman. I must say, I really appreciate that statement that you mentioned that we should be using the term LDL threshold, not goal. 
that's a really important point because it's easy for us to just be comfortable once the LDL is below 70 and not try to improve it further. Dr. Gluckman, it's been great speaking to you today and we really appreciate the insight that we've gotten from you regarding this subject. Just want to highlight that, you know, there's been increasing research in the inflammatory aspect of coronary artery disease, especially focusing on the treatment of underlying substrate. And these agents have shown good promise. I just have a question to you. Um, what direction do you see this field going in the future? And on top of that, I do also, I was wondering, you did mention earlier about the other omega-3 acid, which is the alpha-linolenic acid. What potential therapies are you aware of regarding this? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say that in the area of inflammation, some people have dedicated their entire career to this, but it certainly got on the radar for a lot of us that targeting inflammation represents a yet additional means to reduce cardiovascular risk in at-risk individuals. And it is almost the case in everything in cardiovascular medicine, the greater the derangement in the underlying problem, hypertension for elevated blood pressure, LDL cholesterol, triglycerides to some degree, but inflammation as measured perhaps by HSCRP, the greater the cardiovascular risk faced by that individual. So I think we've talked a little bit about Jupiter, which sort of set this into motion. The challenge with Jupiter was statins lower LDL cholesterol and they reduce inflammation, they reduce HSCRP. So what benefit is derived from which mechanism in terms of statin therapy? The Cantos trial with canakinumab, a pure IL-1 beta inhibitor, made us understand that targeting inflammation singularly was associated with cardiovascular risk reduction. So the field is really morphing into one in which other potential anti-inflammatory therapies are being explored. Beyond IL-1 beta, are there other targets? Should it be interleukin-6? Is there a role for colchicine understanding in people who have baseline elevated inflammatory biomarkers, what is the effect of colchicine in terms of those inflammatory biomarkers and how does that influence the magnitude of cardiovascular risk reduction? Or should there be altogether different anti-inflammatory therapies that are being used? And there are a number of other therapies that are being considered in targeting inflammation. So I think we're really in, I would say, the early to mid portion of this journey. A lot more is to be learned. Importantly, there are a number of ongoing event-driven trials evaluating different targets of inflammation. More to come. And this hopefully opens up yet again additional means by which to mitigate cardiovascular risk in a patient in particular with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease beyond antiplatelet therapy, beyond blood pressure-lowering therapy, beyond lipid-modifying therapy. We may then roll out yet another form, that being anti-inflammatory therapy. That's amazing, Dr. Gluckman. You know, we, we know so much about ASCVD and how to take care of it, how to treat it, how to lower risk, but there's so much we still need to know and so much we're learning about inflammation and inflammasome and how we can target that. And something that seems so concrete in our medical knowledge is ever growing, ever evolving. So I really appreciate that overview. So one follow-up question with regards to future directions in terms of the field. Now, Dr. Gluckman, we mentioned at the top of the show that one of your many areas of expertise is in app development. You've had a lot of success in this realm. You develop apps to help clinicians answer questions about how to assess ASCVD risk, how to approach anticoagulation, and lots of really important day-to-day clinical questions. You know, we live in an increasingly digital world. CardioNerds is a digital platform. And I want to know, is there anything on the horizon that excites you with regards to this interplay between cardiology and digital technology? What's, what's the next best thing there? 
Yeah, this is a phenomenal question. And and I'll be brutally honest, I'm not a programmer. I am not someone who you would say has amazing skills in terms of computers or apps. But my biggest focus, and in, in particular in partnering with professional societies like the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association, was to try and close gaps in care that really thwart or limit our ability to mitigate risk as much as we otherwise could. So one of these was, how do we best deliver therapy if we don't understand cardiovascular risk? I didn't come up with the pooled cohort equation, but the question was, how can we put this in the hands of clinicians in order to simplify care delivery? And by no means is this the simplest approach to things, but nonetheless, this type of app has now been internalized into electronic medical record systems to allow people to point at care to be able to essentially better care for patients. And in an increasingly digital world, I think apps and many of our digital devices, they're here to stay, and they've been here to stay for decades. What I will say is I think apps that are both patient-facing and clinician-facing have the ability to be able to make our lives easier. And for the patients in particular, hopefully they allow people to become activated, to learn, and engage in their care. And so hopefully the apps that allow us to phone a car for rideshare purposes or order food to be delivered are the very same tools that will allow us to better care for patients and patients to better care for themselves. Dr. Gluckman, that was an amazing answer, honestly, to that question. And it's been an amazing conversation. Really appreciate your time here. I've, I've learned a tremendous amount and I can't really wait to share this with, with others as well. We'd like to ask you a follow-up question today that we close out all episodes here with. And we're kind of used to asking here, but really interested on your take on this. At CardioNerd, we're very much interested in what makes people passionate about cardiology. And we'd love to ask you what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention. I love this question. You'll often hear me say my greatest joy in life would be putting myself out of business. Disappointingly, I don't think we're ever going to see that in my lifetime. But what I would say is in cardiovascular medicine and what drew me into it is the wealth of data that we have to define best practices and what we should be doing. But it's largely been reactive. People have already developed diabetes and we're now seeing the consequences of that. People have already had a cardiovascular event and we're trying to now mitigate risk. How do we get upstream? So the excitement about cardiovascular prevention is it's a field that's dedicated towards mitigating the risk of someone having a first event preventing a risk factor from even occurring. And so if we can push all the way into primordial prevention and preventing even risk factors from occurring to begin with, that would be really, really exciting. And I would also say for those of you who are in different phases of training, you know, we're shifting into a value-based world where we're being asked to better care for populations as a whole. And I can think of no better field in cardiovascular prevention where we have the ability to be empowered with tools to make a big difference in a population at large. And with that, I want to really thank you all for the opportunity to participate in this. This is just as exciting for me as I hope it was for the information that we shared today. Dr. Gluckman, that's so kind. And trust me, this has been an incredibly exciting conversation for us and incredibly elucidating too. I'm just, there's so many things to go back and learn here. And I I just thank you again for so much for giving us your time and for all, all the time and effort into this episode. This is going to be really fun. Well, I will end on the fact informally that I don't get a chance to teach that often. I love this kind of work. So count me in for the next one. As the opportunities present themselves in the future, don't hesitate to reach out. Oh, man, we'll, we'll take you up on that. This has been a great conversation. and uh, Absolutely. Yeah, it was a true pleasure talking with you here. Yeah, Dr. Brooklyn, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. I got to go run pick up my daughter. But honestly, the pleasure was all mine. Have a great evening, you guys. Bye-bye. Hey, guys, that was amazing. 
Yeah. He put so much effort into this. Oh my God. And this was just next level. Yeah. That was really top notch. Yeah. I'm just like, it's so, so good. I'm really excited to hear this come out. Totally agree. And Justice, thank you for all your work on this too. 